0: This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No guests, no preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, and this time, no explanations. This is Encounter 103, The Flatwoods Monster. Lights in the sky, bizarre creatures, shocked and appalled witnesses, the involvement of men who would become major figures in the fields of flying saucerdom. The Flatwoods Monster case has it all. Today we travel back to a time before everyone knew what saucer occupants looked and acted like, a time when saucer lives could be extremely strange. When I was doing the research for this episode, I decided not to do my usual thing on topics with which I'm less familiar. I didn't start with what a flying saucer expert said about it or anything like that from decades later. I decided to start with some newspaper accounts and then move on from there. So as far as it's possible, we'll be hearing this more or less from the relatively simple beginnings to the theories and explanations that people have proposed over the years. Most people first heard of what would become known as the Flatwoods Monster in the Charleston, West Virginia Daily Mail a few days after the events of September 12, 1952. It was an article headlined, Braxton County Residents Faint Become Ill After Run In with Weird 10 Foot Monster. I really enjoy that they made sure we knew it was a weird 10 foot monster and not, you know, sort of banal 10 foot monster like everybody else always sees. Seven Braxton County residents Saturday reported seeing a 10-foot Frankenstein-like monster in the hills above Flatwood. They said they saw the monster Friday night when they climbed a wooded hill to investigate reports that a flying saucer had landed. Mrs. Catherine May, Flatwoods, said that she and six boys, including a 17-year-old member of the National Guard, started to search for a bright object which her two small sons said they had seen come down. However, state police laughed the report's office hysteria. They said the so-called monster had grown from 7 to 17 feet in 24 hours. The National Guard member, Gene Lemon, was leading the group when he said he saw what appeared to be a pair of bright eyes in a tree. At first he thought it was an opossum or a raccoon, but when he shone his flashlight on it, he said, he saw a 10-foot monster with a blood-red face and a green body that seemed to glow. Mrs. May said Lemon let out a terrified scream and fell over backwards. She said the monster started toward them with a bounding motion. All of the party agreed that there was an overpowering smell that burned the nostrils and made them sick. Several of the party fainted and vomited for several hours after returning to town. A. Lee Stewart, co-publisher of the Braxton County Democrat, said he and several men armed with shotguns returned with Lemon about a half hour to an hour later, and reported a sickening odor still present. He said there were also slight heat waves in the air. Those people were the most scared people I've ever seen, Stuart said. People don't make up that kind of story that quickly. Both Mrs. May and Lemon described the thing as having the shape of a man, blood-red face, bright green body, protruding eyes, and hand extended forward, and appeared to give off an eerie light. They said it had a black shield affair in the shape of an ace of spades behind it and what looked like a pleated metallic shirt. It looked worse than Frankenstein, Mrs. May said. So many things jump out at me from this initial report. The almost casual mention of a flying saucer that had landed, the detailed description of the monster, the colors, the smells, and the way it moved that have been a part of almost every description of this incident down to the present day with, with little variations here and there. The fact that a shotgun-toting posse showed up to investigate the site of the encounter and encountered the same sort of odors that the witnesses did—all this is really interesting. And this, actually, this notion of an odor was was you know really striking because strange smells would be part and parcel of many weird encounters, not just saucers, but many different paranormal environments. Sulfur-like smells, for example, have been associated with strange encounters for centuries. The description of the monster as Frankenstein-like is interesting. If I look at descriptions of the creature or pictures based on accounts, it doesn't look Frankenstein-y to me, not at all. This kind of illustrates, I think, that we have a very limited vocabulary for describing strange things that are outside of our experience. And, and the words we use and the comparisons we draw sort of reflect the cultural and societal you know, environment we live in. In times past, or to witnesses with different cultural, social, or religious reference points, this might have been described as a demon, probably. In 1952, however, it's a Frankenstein monster that arrived in a flying saucer. As the wire services like UPI and AP picked up on the story, Clarksburg, West Virginia native Gray Barker was intrigued and pitched a story about the encounter to Fate magazine editor Ray Palmer. Fate was one of the first major flying saucer publications out there, and Ray Palmer had been involved in some pretty strange stories going back to the 1940s. At some point in the future, we'll probably talk about Richard Shaver and the Hollow Earth, and and Ray Palmer was at the center of that as well. Palmer was skeptical of the Flatwoods story, but seemed enthusiastic about getting a first-hand report from somebody on the scene. Uh, somebody probably that he wouldn't have to pay to fly to West Virginia since uh, Barker was only an hour or so up the road. So Barker went to West Virginia, uh, or who was in West Virginia rather, went to Flatwoods and uh, would later publish a story on the event in the January 1953 issue of Fate magazine. And the description of the event that Barker outlines is is pretty much the same. Um, There's a little more detail about the appearance. Um, He says that uh, the in the face were two eye-like openings rather than eyes, and that greenish orange beams uh, projected out from the monster. Um, rather than being green, uh, some of the witnesses would later say that it was sort of a, a, a sort of black and colorless sort of sort of uh, tone to the creature. But for the most part, the description is pretty much the same. In closing his article, Bender recounted a conversation with J. Holt Byrne, who was the mayor of Sutton, which was the county seat of Braxton County, and also the editor of uh, the newspaper, one of the newspapers in Braxton County. Byrne asked Barker's opinion of what the, uh, the seven people in Braxton County had encountered, and uh, Barker closes his article with his reply. In my belief, I told him, the account fits perfectly with others of flying saucers or similar craft. I believe that such a vehicle landed on the hillside, either from necessity or to make observations. The monster could have been a robot from the globular ship or some entity inside a suit which would adapt the wearer to Earth's atmosphere. When the flashlight was shown upon it, that stimulus then would start the creature on its way back to the ship, or perhaps it did not see nor take notice of the seven-odd bipeds that had come to view it, and, had they waited, might have completed his progress to the ship and left. But that's speculation. What I do know is that when you talk to seven people with honesty and fear in their eyes, you know in your heart they're telling the truth. These people did see something. And whatever they saw was very much like what they described. Barker expanded on this in the first issue of his Flying Saucer zine, The Saucerian. But my favorite bit of Barker's writing about the monster came at the beginning of They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which we discussed last week. You laughed about the famous West Virginia monster when you read about it in the newspapers. I'm glad you didn't see it or you wouldn't be reading this. You wouldn't want to hear the word flying saucer mentioned again. Put yourself in the shoes of a housewife, a teenager or a ten-year-old boy and walk over a hilltop into the unknown, into an experience so alien and awesome your body freezes, cold shock overcomes you, and you later vomit for hours. It is a calm, warm, late summer evening when everything seems normal and the way it should be. You're playing ball with some other kids when you see the meteorite, or at least that is what people said you saw. It flashes across the sky, and seems to land on the hilltop, as many meteorites seem to do. It didn't land on the hill. I bet it went over, the neighbor kid says. But you're kids, and you decide to go up and look at it anyway. It is something to do, and the game is becoming dull. In that urgency, peculiar to the undertakings of childhood, everybody starts running. Maybe it's a flying saucer, one kid shouts. Everybody laughs. Maybe it's a man from Mars, and he'll jump out and get you. Everybody laughs again, for that's something you read about only in books, like this. As you approach the hilltop, you have a feeling you later are unable to explain to the reporters who talk to you. You smell a funny odor. You are afraid, but the others are along, and then you take comfort in the dog, romping along beside you. Suddenly, the dog tucks its tail between its legs and flees, yelping pitifully. When you look over the top of the hill, several things happen all at once. You see a fiery something totally outside your experience, and as you puzzle for a moment, focusing your eyes on the unknown, you fail to see the horror approaching from your left. It is in shadow, but someone sees its eyes and flashes the light on it. It lights up like a neon sign. To you, this is not some phenomenon to be pondered and examined rationally. You once saw hell in a fever dream, or envisaged it in the choked rantings of a bleak-eyed evangelist. Here in a dread second is that same awful fear, though now all-consuming and elemental, grabbing your bones and muscles with cold convulsions. It is a monster that walks like a man, a creature from the blackest memory of your fears. You don't remember when you started to run. Not until later do you discover you are almost overcome by what someone said was gas. Interest in the Flatwoods monster didn't end with Barker. Even Major Donald E. Kehoe, head of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee for Aerial Phenomenon, which was the epitome of flying saucer stodginess in the 1950s, addressed Flatwoods in his 1953 book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space. Kehoe had been puzzled at the Air Force's professed disinterest in the Flatwoods case, dismissing it as a, quote, monster story. Kehoe decided to dig deeper. I discovered that the Air Force had not ignored the report. To avoid public attention, intelligence had worked through the West Virginia State Police, securing all the details. Later, from a source outside the Pentagon, I heard that intelligence had followed this up by sending two men in civilian clothes who posed as magazine writers while interviewing witnesses. Even if this was not true, and the Air Force did deny it, their check through the State Police showed more interest than they had admitted. I'll be honest. Before I started doing some background work on this uh, this episode, I had no idea that Kehoe had you know devoted an entire page and a half to the Flatwoods Monster, um, because I don't like reading Donald Kehoe's books, and I never have, and I've read them as little as possible because many of them are quite boring. However, I I that's two episodes in a row where I've bashed Donald Kehoe. I, I probably should stop, but it, I can't. Kehoe was one of the original originators of the now well-established notion that sinister government forces, in this case the Air Force, were actively involved with suppressing information about flying saucers and keeping that information from the public. The few pages he devotes to the Flatwoods case gives us a window into the development of that idea and gives the Flatwoods case another sort of interesting bit of significance in, in that it was part of very early on in 1953 Kehoe and NICAP building this idea that the Air Force was, in fact, interested in the flying saucer phenomenon, but was very, very invested in making sure nobody knew they were interested in the flying saucer phenomenon. Kehoe offers no real ideas or explanation about, um, about the, uh, the Flatwoods event, which is not the case with a writer who would come along in the, uh, the, the 1990s and the early years of the 21st century named uh, Frank Faschino, Jr., who wrote a number of books about the Flatwoods monster case, which, as far as I can tell, are all basically the same book that's gone through some different uh, uh, editions and reiterations. In the version of the book entitled The Braxton County Monster, uh, Ficino, who describes himself as, quote, the world's most thorough investigator of this UFO incident in history, end quote, places the event within the context of what he calls a, quote, invasion of giant aliens. On his website, he provides a little bit more lurid detail. It was America, 1952, the summer of saucers, the biggest UFO flap in U.S. history. Append to this freshly minted orders to the military to shoot these UFOs down. Stir in the Flatwoods Affair, the auspicious end of the Summer of Saucers, and you may have an undeclared and secret air war with E.T., war where many men and much equipment was lost, forgetting the huge collateral damage right here in the United States. I unabashedly report that that's where the data leads, eh? No apologies here. It's it's sort of takes the story of Flatwoods from the snippets I've read here and there, it takes the story of Flatwoods and it makes it part of the larger story of the 1952 saucer flap, which is, um, actually a pretty interesting story. There was a well-documented sort of multiple witness mass sighting over Washington DC during the summer of 1952. There was a spike in sightings all over the country. Um, Flatwoods being sort of the tail end of summer, uh, in, in, early to mid-September certainly fits in this. And um, Vachino's um, idea of a, of a secret air war against E.T. while sort of eye roll inducing kind of gives me a little sort of, I can sort of connect that to Kehoe's idea that, that the Air Force was keenly involved in what happened in Flatwoods but but desperate that the public not know and that they sort of laughingly dismiss it as a uh, as a, a monster story rather than something that the military should be involved with. Um, Ficino's book looks to be, uh, looks to be, if nothing else, um, a, uh, a good-hearted effort to place the Flatwoods Affair into the wider context of what was going on with flying saucers in the early 1950s. As, as weird as, as Ficino's ideas might be, uh, they are, in fact, more interesting than the ideas of PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. They renamed themselves simply CSI in the, uh, the early 2000s, apparently because CSI was popular. This is uh, an, an organization mostly made up of, an, an, in my opinion, unimaginative killjoys who don't like fun stories about creepy monsters in West Virginia and would like us to ignore them. On the other hand, I have to admit that PsyCop has done a lot of good, you know, know, sort of unmasking hoaxers and and sort of malicious people who are misleading the public, uh, the paying public about uh, about strange phenomenon, but some of their debunking efforts uh, tend to be kind of, you know, it's like, okay, maybe it wasn't real, but your story is boring. I prefer the 10-foot monsters. Um, Psychop, uh, in, in the, the early 2000s, 2000 actually, um, Joe Nickel, uh, one of their investigators, uh, had figured out the whole thing, um, which is really convenient. Considering all the characteristics of the described monster and making small allowances for misperceptions and other distorting factors, we may conclude, adapting an old adage, that if it looked like a barn owl, acted like a barn owl, and hissed, then it was most likely a barn owl. I want to meet that 10-foot barn owl. I'm just saying. It wasn't just skeptics and debunkers like Joe Nickell who undermined the Flatwoods monster story. Um, during the 1970s, early 1970s, I think there were some alleged hoaxers that came forward and claimed that they had made a costume and, and scared the people. Um, but regardless of... of whatever the explanation for this very strange event might be. The Flatwoods incident, like many other of the more interesting saucer events out there, was more or less one of a kind. Um, you don't see this other creature, this creature popping up in a lot of different places. It's also very interesting because of the monster aspect. It, it's not a gray, it's not a gray alien, that is. It's not a blonde friendly space brother humanoid. It's a weird, bizarre monster. It pushes this into the realm of of what's known as high strangeness. High strangeness is in many ways a catch-all term for UFO sightings and alien encounters, psychic phenomena, hauntings, zyptochrological, cryptozoological creatures, and the like. It's a useful category, but some saucer or UFO types don't uh, don't use the category much. In the old days, especially in the 1960s and again beginning in the 1980s, the dominant thread running through the saucer world was that people were seeing physical craft from other planets. In the 1980s, with the growing public awareness of the abduction phenomenon, this nuts and bolts approach took center stage again. The overlap between saucer encounters and, say, poltergeists or Bigfoot sightings usually wasn't addressed. The Flatwoods case is the perfect example of UFO high strangeness. There are cryptozoological elements. It's a monster story. You've got some horrifying smells. And in my opinion, you've got more hallmarks of high strangeness with Flatwoods than really that it shares with typical flying saucer encounters. Something else that strikes me about Flatwoods is the way in which this brief incident has become entwined with the identity of the town. About two months ago, the semi-mysterious Dr. D and I took a little road trip to the area, spending a day or so in Braxton County. One of my favorite things was the array of five or so Flatwoods monster chairs around the, around the county. Um, basically giant sort of Adirondack style chairs that were painted like um, painted like the, the Flatwoods monster. Um, at the Dairy Queen, at a ballpark, a um, couple other places. It was a lot of fun to drive around and take pictures of these massive chairs. We also picked up some Flatwoods Monster t-shirts from the volunteer fire department, had a nice conversation with the firefighter there about the new Flatwoods Monster logos that are on the side of their new fire engines. Sadly, there were some audio issues with the recording of Dr. D and I, so we won't be able to feature that this time. We hope to bring you the whole conversation in which we compare our adventures in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, Braxton County, and Point Pleasant, West Virginia at a future time. While this incident may have launched the saucer life of somebody like Gray Barker, I think one of the great things about this event is the way that it gave a lasting unique identity to this tiny community in in the literal geographic center of West Virginia. Cities and towns have lives like people, and like more well-known places like Roswell, New Mexico, or Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the Flatwoods Monster gave Flatwoods its own saucer life. We hope you return next time when we take uh, a little detour and do something a little different. It's going to be the first of, of what is probably going to be a, a semi-regular series called Read These Books, where I'll take a brief look at four flying saucer-themed books that I believe you absolutely must read if you intend to be any sort of well-informed person about this topic. Um, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's a good place to start and some books you might not have heard of. So that's what we're going to be go- doing next time. And then we're going to finish up this first series of six episodes. Uh, episodes five and six are going to be sort of a two-part uh, affair where we take our first look at a group of flying saucer experiencers that would become known as contactees. So that's what's coming down the pike for the next, uh, next three episodes. And then there's going to be a little bit of a longer break and we'll launch, um, we'll launch what we are uh, pretentiously calling season two after that. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Uh, You can, as always, you can follow along with us at saucerlife.wordpress.com and on Twitter at saucerlife, all one word, or you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. On Facebook, you can find me at Aaron John Gullius. Um, Just search for that on Facebook and you'll find it Gullius is spelled G-U-L-Y-A-S. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you could rate and review The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere else, that'd be great. Sharing and retweeting the links are also much appreciated. Thanks this time, go out to the Braxton County, West Virginia Convention and Visitors Bureau, which does a great job of publicizing the monster and was very generous in providing um, me with a, a, a huge file of scans of contemporary newspaper articles and Gray Barker's article from Fate magazine and all kinds of stuff. Um, also, um, sort of from from last time, Wendy Connors is a woman who's digitized a great number of decades-old UFO audio recordings, um, including the um, the uh, Al Bender clips from our last episode. Um, and uh, it, it didn't really, I couldn't really find a way to shoehorn it into this episode. But there's about a half hour of um, biologist and cryptozoologist Ivan Sanderson talking about the Flatwoods Monster on. Um, Long John Nepple's Party Line radio show from 1956. There's a link to that on, uh, on the website in the show notes, so you can check that out. So Wendy Connors did a, a huge amount of work digitizing all this old audio. We also thank uh, the semi-mysterious Dr. D for his contributions to this episode and to uh, the production side of things as well. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. And till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.